Well, good morning and welcome to Rising. So glad that you are tuning in. We have another just stupendous show to deliver today, and we can't wait to discuss all the news. Isn't that right, Brianna? That's right, Robbie. Big news right up top. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit has ruled that former President Trump is not immune from prosecution in the case charging him with plotting to overturn the 2020 election results. In their decision, the judges wrote, we conclude that the interest in criminal accountability held by both the public and the executive branch outweighs the potential risks of chilling presidential action and permitting vexatious lit litigation. Trump is expected to appeal, although analysts say it's unclear whether his team will take it to the next appeals court or all the way to the Supreme Court. Trump responded to the ruling on Truth Social, writing... A president of the United States must have full immunity in order to properly function and do what has to be done for the good of our country. So bad and so dangerous for our nation, save presidential immunity. Meanwhile, after the former president failed to appear on Nevada's GOP primary ballot yesterday, the option for none of these candidates won, beating out Nikki Haley by a whopping 30 points. None of these candidates a very, very appealing uh, option for, uh, for me. Trump chastised Haley for her bad night in Nevada on True Social, quipping, watch, she'll soon claim victory. And new today, Republican National Committee Chair Ronna McDaniel is apparently preparing to leave her role after beefing with former President Trump. He had wanted McDaniel, McDaniel to cancel the primary for him altogether. McDaniel apparently is going to leave after the South Carolina primary on February 24th. But things are still fluid, sources tell the New York Times. So three things to get to there. Uh, first of all, look, Trump, neither Trump nor other president should have blanket immunity from prosecution for actions taken as president. Um, all, you know, MAGA people who are supporting Trump's bid for total immunity here should, like, ask themselves whether they would support this if a Democrat, if Joe Biden was the president. They will all say no, so that it should be a, a very open and shut matter. And frankly, constitutionally, it is an open and shut matter that the president, uh, the, the office of the president, the executive, has taken, not just Trump, every president has taken illegal actions, some of them with massive negative policy consequences. They should be held more accountable, not less. Totally agree. No man is above the law. That's one of the founding principles yeah. of the United States of America. We, uh, founding fathers left Europe because they didn't want any more kings, and it shouldn't be especially controversial that we should not make our president into one. Um, what do you make of the news that nobody won in Nevada? Is this the kind of indictment of the choices that are before the American public on both parties, frankly, because we just discussed earlier this week what low turnout there was yeah. in the South Carolina primary with only 4% coming out to turn out ballots. Is this a similar kind of referendum? So the Nevada situation got really complicated. They're ha they're, they had a primary and they're going to have a caucus tomorrow. Mm. So Nikki Haley was comp only competing in the primary and Donald Trump is only competing in the caucus. So, so uh, our wonderfully democratic system, <laughs> you could choose which, uh, which, uh, which uh, political uh, ele which election you want to do. There's only going to be one candidate in it. The caucus is what counts for delegates. So Trump's getting all those delegates. Gets. Nikki Haley, if she had won in this primary, it would have been purely symbolic. It doesn't mean anything. She didn't win. She lost to none of the above. So, you know, it, it, there's, there's not really a lesson to draw that from this, except that 
the system has to some degree been rigged in Trump's favor, not to the degree it's been rigged in Joe Biden's favor on the other side. But still, there is tremendous institutional um, heft behind Donald Trump. And, but also, there is really, there has not emerged a discernible appetite, you know, some appetite for Nikki Haley in New Hampshire. Other than that, not much. It's, it's just going to be Trump's. It's Trump's party, and cry if you want to. Yeah, it does seem that way, although it is curious to see this kind of backlash against Ronna McDaniel. Uh, it does seem from the outside that like she has gone out of her way, frankly, to grease the runway for Donald Trump, but that doesn't seem to have healed the acrimony between them there. What do you make of uh, the, that acrimony and, and her choice to um, step down? McDaniel has been a scapegoat for uh, frustrated conservatives for years now. Um, they have been—everyone has wanted her gone for a long time. I'm frankly surprised she's held on this long. Um, she is she is someone whom a lot of people blame for what's gone wrong. I don't know that it's fair to blame her, yeah, but wh they do blame her. Yeah, what is the basis her. of that? Well, the basis of it is that in the time Donald Trump has, has been on the political scene—so the, the Republicans won in, in uh, 2016, yay for them—and then, uh, then lost— in 2018, in 2020, in 2022. And the question becomes, well, who can we blame for this? And we can't blame Trump. You just can't. <laughs> so you have to blame McDaniel. That's, that's as complicated as the thinking is. Yeah. Um, now, despite her having done a lot to help Trump maintain and consolidate control over the party, it's not perceived as enough. It's almost a Pence situation where you can go along with him, but unless you're willing to commit 120 percent to what he wants you to do, you'll end up being denounced just like the rest, and that's what's happened. Yeah, it, is, it will be interesting to see if the only thing that really can—I don't, I don't mean this in a— um, overly partisan way, the only thing that really truly can obstruct Trump without ultimately bending the knee will be some kind of um, legal recourse. There have been some recent big losses for him in the civil cases, and now this, in the context of this civil, in this criminal case, rather, unclear, obviously, if the prosecutors are going to be able to successfully make the case that the machinations leading up to January 6 really did constitute an overthrowing of the election results, and whether or not, ultimately, people will be able to make the case that that is a, quote, insurrection for the purposes of barring him from the ballot. But things are moving forward, and I do wonder if there is going to be any thought within the Republican Party, the way there is now burgeoning considerations happening on the Democratic side of the aisle, of what the backup option really is, especially in light of a, a new clip that we're going to discuss later today showing another really bad-looking yeah. moment for Joe Biden as he struggles to put his words together. Yeah, we're going to get to that in just a minute. Um, one more uh, parting thought on uh, Ronna McDaniel. I just want to remind everyone—so her name is actually Ronna Romney McDaniel. Mm -hmm. She's a member of the Romney family. Trump suggested to her that she drop the Romney from her name when he was so mad at Mitt Romney, and uh, she, she was willing to do that. You, you change your name for a man, and he still doesn't want to keep you around. <laughs> <laughs> more rising right after this. Investigative reporter Lee Fong appeared on Capitol Hill yesterday to blast social media surveillance and censorship. You know, what's been very interesting, uh, Mr. Fong, you said at the beginning of the hearing, you uh, used the example from a committee hearing in 2012, and you implored the committee to approach this serious issue, AI and censorship, uh, in a bipartisan way. Uh, how do you think that's worked out in this hearing? Look, I, I watched part of that hearing and read the transcript, and 
you know, this was on a much more minor issue. This was just the DHS contracting to monitor social media, not censor, not interject, not work with the FBI to pressure social media to take down posts. This was arguably a much more benign issue. And in that hearing, you had both sides, Republicans and Democrats, raising very legitimate privacy concerns, free speech concerns. And it wasn't partisan. It was both sides working together to discuss these common principles. Yeah, what about this hearing? Has it worked out bipartisan way as far as you're, you're concerned? Uh, not, not so much. Yeah. In new reporting, Lee Fong makes the case that everyone loses in America's misinformation war and that there are, there are insidious alliances between big tech and government. He also details a new Twitter file story revealing that the Department of Homeland Security reportedly acted on an inaccurate tip to successfully pressure Twitter, now X, to censor a New York Times journalist. We are welcomed, wel welcoming you today to talk to us about all of this directly. Thank you for being with us today, Lee. Great to see you in studio. It's always a treat. Look, your testimony went through a, a remarkable number of instances in which uh, surveillance, government-backed surveillance, have come up more than I even, frankly, remember. And I remember we should start by helping people remember why this is such a big problem. What are some of the big stories that you've been covering that kind of justify the frustration that there isn't a bipartisan interest in actually nailing some of this down? Well, I've covered social media and other forms of censorship and surveillance for 15 years now, but showcasing the real the history of the Department of Homeland Security getting involved in these issues kind of began in an October 2022 story. I wrote about the history and kind of the backstory of CISA, you know, the sub-agency of DHS, started as an agency that was looking at physical uh, infrastructure, power lines, pipelines, and then got into cognitive infrastructure, kind of policing our intellectual thoughts and, and feelings. And, you know, this is the, the broader ag agency, DHS, starting as, uh, you know, a government entity to protect us from another 9-11, now getting into policing people's parody tweets and mm -hmm. Instagram posts, um, just the incredible bureaucratic creep. And from there, you know, I got, got involved with the Twitter files, finding really concrete examples of the FBI and DHS constantly pressuring social media companies on political speech. You know, in some cases, these were tweets and posts where there was inaccurate information, but in many cases, uh, it was uh, posts that are areas of legitimate debate, you know, like discussions around pandemic lockdowns, pan uh, vaccine passports. In the case that I, in the example I just revealed on my Substack this week, um, the Department of Homeland Security acted on an inaccurate tip and pressured Twitter to censor even a New York Times reporter during the 2020 election. It's incredible, and they've done that. Social media companies have done this at the behest of so many different U.S. agencies, Homeland Security, the FBI, the CDC, the White House itself. White House officials uh, now shown to have messaged with Amazon. You probably saw that story this week. Very similar um, tone to the messages from this White House official to Amazon, similar to what we saw with Meta and with uh, Twitter, now X, in terms of, you know, how could you let all this misinformation be out there? How could you, with Amazon, it's literal books, right? They're a bookstore, and they're saying they don't want the, these anti-vaccine books um, to be available on the platform without at least, like, having them flagged as untrue by the CDC or something like that. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, if this was on the other side, if, you know, if there were 
Um, liberal books or books that are associated with the left or pieces of literature, I think people would be apoplectic, um, very upset at that. It just so happens that many of these uh, types of content that have been censored recently have been kind of coded as conservative. But you know, the general principle still applies. Do we want the government censoring journalists or books or other forms of content? And you know, as I spoke in committee yesterday, I really wanted to make the case that it's not just the government. These cases with the government censoring are important because it's a whole different legal category. You know, that's the Supreme right. Court is now looking at with uh, uh, Missouri v. Biden. But there's, there's also private sector entities. You know, in my reporting, I look at pharmaceutical companies, other private interests that have pressured Twitter and other platforms to sh make content decisions that shape policies that affect their own companies. Um, again, a different legal category, but as citizens, as, as the American people, it doesn't matter if it's a, the government or a private entity, uh, we're still impacted by the censorship. Yeah, I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, that you raised a hypothetical, what if this were happening on the left, would there be more interest? But in your piece on your Substack, you do mention that there is this individual, uh, Brian Murphy, who was hired, who was previously responsible for illicit surveillance of left-wing protesters. We've obviously seen people like Abby Martin after the uh, Ukraine-Russia war started, having her entire um, show being stripped off of YouTube, along with another a number of other left-leaning actors uh, who were covering that war in a way that was being framed as Putin-centric or being Putin puppets by the mainstream media. Obviously, there's been a lot of censorship around coverage of Israel and Palestine, and a new story about uh, CNN top-down um, edicts that dictate how the stories are covered, with, covered within news organizations, much less censorship that may or may not be happening on these website. So I want to ask you, is there any increased interest from, let's say, left-leaning members of Congress, like Lashida Tlaib, who have been obviously very invested in the issue of Israel-Palestine? And what mechanisms exist to pressure websites, whether it's uh, YouTube, whether it's Twitter and Elon Musk, to continue to be transparent about how those kind of um, uh, deplatforming uh, censor censorship, soft censorship decisions are being made? Look, I've laid out a lot of examples of this. And the frustrating aspect of covering free speech issues is that there are a lot of fair-weather supporters of free speech that only stand up for free speech when it's their own side being censored. But you know, if you really want to support this principle, uh, support these values, you've got to stand up even for your political opposition. And look, I, I've laid out lots of examples of uh, pro-Palestinian, Palestinian activists, people who are talking about Palestinian human rights, now being censored over the last three months. You know, I broke the story last year about um, some pro-Israel activists creating artificial intelligence-powered bots that mass-report uh, pro-Palestinian accounts to get them censored or blocked. It's a big problem. Um, and, I, and I was really fortunate to be at this Republican-convened hearing to discuss these issues of even Palestinian human rights, to talk about that, that example that I recently reported of Brian Murphy, a former Trump official, Trump intelligence official, who was building dossiers and spying on Antifa and left-wing groups. You know, I've been critical of Antifa in the past, but they, they deserve their own privacy rights. We don't want the government, a big government, big brother situation where everyone's being policed and given a social credit score based on what they're tweeting or, or, or engaging in First Amendment-protected uh, forms of expression. Uh, the, the issue with Brian Murphy and others is that they're now moving into the private sector and, and lobbying and, and shaping uh, not just this administration, but maybe future uh, administrations in terms of content moderation decisions. Yeah, well, I'll be very interested to see what the Supreme Court decides on this in the case that you mentioned, um, and if they put any limits on how much the government officials specifically can talk to the, uh, the social media companies. I think a lot of us believe there's 
maybe some interaction is okay. There are law enforcement issues sure. on social media, and you, you said that in your comments. It's not that there's never going to be any reason for uh, for the FBI to talk to Mark Zuckerberg, but when it's going down to like granular what you're allowed to say on the platform and what whether you're allowed to have an account on in terms of policy questions, activism, COVID, et cetera, it's clearly gone way too and, far. And shadow banning, so people aren't even aware of the extent well, the to which they've policies been they're limited. violating. Yeah. They have no idea. It makes people exactly. crazy. Yeah. <laughs> well, we appreciate uh, your reporting, which I guess you're still calling the Twitter files, even though now it makes sense to call it the X-Files. <laughs> yeah, but that's X-Files. a different thing. <laughs> Lee, thank you so much for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. Good stuff. to see you guys. More Rising right after this. In an unexpected defeat, House Republicans failed to pass impeachment articles against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas after internal divisions caused them to miss the mark by just one vote. Three Republicans, Colorado's Ken Buck, Wisconsin's Mike Gallagher, and California's Tom McClintock, joined Democrats to vote against the resolution. A fourth Republican, Utah's Blake Moore, joined the no side to allow the House GOP to bring up the vote again later. Speaker Mike Johnson has vowed to bring the articles back to the floor. Meanwhile, Senate Republicans seem to have abandoned the bipartisan border bill, though some are asking how it even happened in the first place. Border reporter Julio Rosas posted on X that a Border Patrol source said the border deal is a disaster, and we are wondering what Brandon Judd, head of the Border Patrol Union, sold us out for. None of the Border Patrol agents are happy with this statement. And the Biden administration is taking an interesting tack, blaming Trump for the current issues on the border. Take a look. Every day between now and November, the American people are going to know that the only reason the border is not secure is Donald Trump and his MAGA Republican friends. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre tried to push the same line as Fox News' Peter Ducey pushed her on the border issue during a press conference. Let's watch. You guys talk a lot, including today, about how the border wouldn't be such a big deal if Congress would have just passed your immigration bill on day one. Who was in charge of Congress on day one? So it's been three years. It's been three, three whole years, more than three years, more than a thousand days. And look, this is a difficult issue, obviously. This is a difficult issue. And what we have said is that Congress has to act, right? Congress, Democrats, Republicans have to act. But in those three years, it is true that Republicans have gotten in the way. They just have, Peter. They have consistently used immigration, the immigration system, the broken system, as a political stunt. That's what they've done. They've gotten in the way in trying to get more Border Patrol agents. They've gotten in the way in actually trying to fix what's happening, the challenges at the border. They did. So I mean, the, they the voted. They've actually voted. The first two years, no response. So Peter Ducey has a point. The spike in immigration levels was happening in that first year of Biden's presidency, where there was a united Democratic government, and there didn't seem to be a particular appetite to address it. I don't know if they thought that it was just a brief spike and that the trend would return more to the mean over time. I 
who knows what the thinking was. But it's also true that it's deeply cynical for Republicans with a much more conservative bill on the table now than ever would have been passed by a Democratic president with a Democratic right. House and Congress is now getting rejected by Republicans. And how can they sit, sit there at the same time that you're trying to impeach Mayorkas for not enforcing the border while you're making the choice not to ratchet up the laws that are at yeah. his disposal to do exactly that? A much more conservative bill because, at the end of the day, Democratic leadership cares the thing they care about the most is sending money to Ukraine. So they were willing to <laughs> right. put a deeply conservative right. immigration bill on the table. Um, it's an interesting situation. So the failed vote for the Mayorkas impeachment, so it was razor thin, mm -hmm. just like one or two votes here, showing you, I mean, this is the trouble the House is in, where it's so closely split. Republicans have no margin for error on these kinds of things. Um, now, of course, even if they had voted to impeach Mayorkas, the Senate is not going to do the same. They're probably not even going to take They're not even going to examine the issue, so it would have come to nothing. I did look up. The, the last time a cabinet secretary faced an impeachment charge was in 1876. So it's been a while. What did he do to earn that? Cane somebody? Secretary of War <laughs> William Belknap. I don't know what he did. We'd have to look it up. <laughs> okay. Um, I mean, well, look, what, what Mayorkas was supposed to have done, the articles he was charged with were willful and systematic refusal to comply with the law and enforcing border policy and breach of public trust. So again, I ask you, willful and system systemic refusal to comply with the law. Here it is on a platter, Republicans, a big, beautiful law, a robust conservative law, a law that would fund ICE. Remember, we're coming off of an electoral season back in 2020 and 2018, where people like AOC were popularizing the phrase, abolish ICE, taking that now uh, classic photo by the border, all in white, crying. This was a rising rallying cry from the Democratic Party and from progressives. This border bill has $7.6 billion of additional funding for ICE. Roughly $6 billion of that is for deportations and detention. That's more than the agency's entire annual enforcement budget. This is the kind of thing Republicans are no voting on. See, the, the, but you keep saying it, and it's you're scaring me away from it because it's government funding for things, which I hate. I'm sorry, people. I just don't like your tax dollars being spent. It's like, oh, well, an increased Robbie, budget for government that, employees? That I can't do it. That is not the argument that I Republicans are making, no, and they can't make it because no, they have I been know. arguing for exactly this kind of funding for years and years and years now. And I have to say, on the other side of this, a lot of progressives are really questioning what the argument is from the Democratic Party as to why they should now turn around and vote for Democrats as they're hollering Ukraine, from the Ukraine, that's the argument. Ukraine. Well, no, I'm talking about progressives. Oh, sure. Progressives are saying, you spent the last election cycle telling me that I had to vote against Trump and against fascism because of the wall and the family separation and these draconian policies at the border. And now Joe Biden is crowing at the top of his lungs that he is the one that's put forward the most aggressive border policy in a generation and trying to get one up and from Republicans for that. But this is entirely predictable because every single time Democrats move right in an effort to secure conservative, independent, conservative leader, leading voters for their base, they have the effect of alienating their genuine base, progressives and people on the left, while not earning a single Republican vote. Because why would you want Republican light when the real Republican Party is right there? And then when election day comes and your young voters and your black voters and your brown voters don't turn out for you, it becomes a blame game without any introspection or accountability. Well, I don't know. I mean, they're looking at that—I I hear what you're saying, but they're looking at that gap in 
in um, who do you trust to handle the border, and you know, Americans saying decisively, overwhelmingly, they trust Trump more than Biden on a couple of questions, the economy, other things, the border being a very big one, and saying, we can't win unless we can get that number down. You know, that, that's reflecting independents, moderates, swing voters in our key states. We got to get Trump's relative approval on border issues at a little bit more parity, or we're just done. There's no way we could possibly win. That's one win. way to look at it. Another way to look at it is to say the reason that voters are prioritizing the border right now has to do with this spike in border crossings. It also has to do with the fact that Republicans are messaging on the border. What are Democrats messaging on? Republicans are, are right, but they don't want to admit they're no, right. You, and you have the power of the pulpit and per, power of persuasion to help to— I'm not going to tell you that you are like actually changing what voters' priorities are, but to some extent, what the news focuses on does start to shift people's political priorities. And there's a world where you could say, look at all of these other affirmative things that the Democratic Party is going to offer, and alternatively, and in addition, rather, offer a plan to address what's going on at the border that is not a conservative approach. That doesn't seem to be even on anybody's mind mm -hmm. that there is a humanitarian and more root cause-based plan to address these border crossings by actually talking about why there is such a spike in immigrants trying to leave their country in the first place. But that is nowhere in the national conversation, and Democrats have just decided to completely adopt Republicans' narrative without even, for one week, one hour, one moment, attempting to put forward their own. And, and to um, Ducey's point, they could have put forward an alternative narrative on immigration on day one, when there was a united Congress in Joe Biden's benefit. They could have done it in year two. They could have done it in year three. And they could be doing it right now. But instead, there was this weird lack of confidence and their ability to actually pitch anything that's actually in line with their own ideals and good for the country. They're clearly terrified by the power of the MAGA persuasive machine, and they will bend the knee to it. And I don't think they'll be successful. We shall see. More rising right after this. Well, it's official. Tucker Carlson is, in fact, interviewing Russian President Vladimir Putin. Now, while many suspected as much due to Carlson's recent Moscow appearance, the former Fox News host released a video yesterday highlighting the reasons why he thought it was important to hear what Putin had to say. Let's take a look. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region, here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances, and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. Following Carlson's announcement video, many took to X to praise him for conducting the interview. Presidential hopeful RFK Jr. posted, Mainstream media journalists have interviewed Putin many times before. The only difference now is that they can't control the narrative. Zelensky has been given numerous primetime interviews. Osama bin Laden has been interviewed before. We have a right to hear from everyone, no matter how you feel personally about them. Former GOP candidate for President Vivek Ramaswamy wrote, Carlson is a real journalist, 
actual intellectual curiosity. But not everyone was so gung-ho on Carlson's interview. CNN's Christiane Amanpour responded to accusations leveled by Carlson that he was the only Western journalist willing to talk with Putin by writing, does Tucker really think we journalists haven't been trying to interview President Putin every day since his full-scale invasion of Ukraine? It's absurd. We'll continue to ask for an interview, just as we have for years now. Amanpour seemed to be vindicated by the community notes under Carlson's video, which added a statement by Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov that, quote, Mr. Carlson is not correct. In fact, there's no way he could know this. We receive numerous requests for interviews with the president. Later on in his announcement video, Carlson alleges that the Biden administration hacked into Carlson and his company's phones to get text messages and leak them to mainstream outlets to try and derail the interview. Let's take a look. Almost three years ago, the Biden administration illegally spied on our text messages and then leaked the contents to their servants in the news media. They did this in order to stop a Putin interview that we were planning. Last month, we're pretty certain they did exactly the same thing once again. But this time, we came to Moscow anyway. Yeah, look, I think there are some true points that are being made here. Of course, it's true that uh, uh, Zelensky has gotten a lot of softball interviews that the mainstream press should be critical of. Of course, it's true that people who are, you know, very much publicly reviled, uh, like Osama bin Laden and Putin, have done mainstream news interviews, and that this doesn't have to be any different. It's also true that I think that Tucker Carlson is overstating his case somewhat by saying that no one else has ever tried to interview Putin. He's the one that's been given access that others apparently have not been given access. And that does raise some questions about why it is that he's being permitted this interview and if he's going to take this opportunity yes. to do a real substantive interview. And we can only judge that after we see the interview itself. Yes. And there is a history, by the way, by mainstream respected journalists of doing um, a little bit of, frankly, some fluff reporting mm -hmm. in order to land the mm -hmm. big interview with the controversial figure and then hitting them with some hard questions. That is something that is an established practice. Um, so, so don't I, I just don't judge what's taken place yet. Judge the actual quality of the interview. I hope Tucker asks about the the Wall Street Journal reporter who has been detained absolutely illegally and unfairly. Um, I hope he asks about the humanitarian cost for Ukraine and for Russia of this war and, and what it will take to get um, Putin to meet with Zelensky or meet with intermediaries in order to bring a halt to this awful, unconscionable war, and, uh, and, and, and many other questions about, uh, about the regime and what's going on in Russia. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, it is interesting, these accusations now that his phone is being tapped and that um, messages are being leaked in order to stop the interview. Do you understand what that argument is or how it's, that is, w would be well-tailored to actually stopping the interview from happening? So I, I remember this accusation being levied that the messages were leaked in order to, I think it was in order to put pressure on, on Tucker's employer at the time to stop this interview. Um, I don't know what's going on now, but I, I am now seeing breaking news from Brian Krasenstein, one of the, the uh, high-profile account on X, saying that the European Union is said to be seeking sanctions and a travel ban against Tucker for doing the interview, so to stop him from traveling throughout the European Union, which frankly does sound like the exact sort of action the European Union would take um, this uh, very 
at times illiberal um, alliance. Um, they, obviously, their their tech policies have become very uh, in much in favor of due process and civil liberties violations on COVID subjects, on uh, some of the Israel-Palestine subjects. So that would not surprise me at all if they're taking the position that yeah. a journalist can't um, can't interview Vladimir Putin. Obviously, within Ukraine, we've covered how Zelensky himself has um, taken taken steps to. Eliminate the free press in the country. Um, Journalists actually, died in custody. There was just. A, yeah, I, I, I might talk about it. I might do a radar on it for tomorrow. I don't know, but well, I'll mention it briefly if I don't end up mentioning it again. There was recently reporting that an actor who had been cast, a Russian actor who had been cast in um, the third season of White Lotus. Mm -hmm. um, we're both fans of that mm -hmm. show, I think. Um, the the Ukrainian government put pressure on HBO to fire him, and they did so ostensibly for like pro-Russian statements he'd made. You can't find a single pro-Russian statement of this person. It was, it's just banal, um, the violence is bad, and I hope the war ends. But he'd, he'd, won, he'd gotten some kind of award from the Russian government years ago, but he hasn't said anything that they could find. The New York Times did a whole story on it. They couldn't find anything he'd said that was, that was pro-Russian or pro-the Russian war, and, uh, and it's another, you know, one of those Russian cancel culture stories. Yeah, I'll probably outrageous. talk about it in more detail You're tomorrow. completely right about the, the tone, the tenor of speech rights in Europe being really, really cold. There was a story in The Intercept uh, earlier this week about German media giant Axel Springer um, saying that From the River to the Sea is a forbidden statement. Uh, obviously in the context of Palestinians, and then running ads in their own paper from Israel uh, that uses that exact phrase, from the river to the sea. And so there's all of the, there is, uh, I think especially in Germany, because of the history of the Holocaust, a real shutdown on pro-Palestinian speech in particular. But you're seeing that that is enabled by a, this broader culture, where there just isn't the same kind of protection for First Amendment uh, protected activities. And I think you're, you're right to point out how that seems to be affecting uh, journalists who are advocating both for uh, Palestinian interests and who want to do even a basic interview with the president uh, of Russia. I, I, I did want to ask also what you make, what you described earlier as, well, sometimes you do a fluff interview to get a more substantive interview. I mean, another word for that is access journalism, yeah. and that gets the obvious critique. I remember we covered a uh, interview between Kamala Harris and Katie Couric recently, where after a tough line of questions from Katie Couric, Katie says, well, now we're going to go talk about some better, some more positive things, the campaign. And uh, Kamala Harris goes, good. <laughs> and, and it did it did kind of give the impression that she said, look, you got to have to put up with me for these few minutes of tough questions, and then we yeah. can move on to easier things. That's not exactly the same thing as access journalism. But should we be concerned, if that's the case, that the only reason that Tucker Carlson might have been able to get Putin in front of a camera where Christiana Anampour cannot is because there is some kind of a guarantee that he's not going to go there. Yeah, I mean, if he if he can't go there at all, then it's obviously not worth doing. If if there are so many conditions put on it, I mean, you know, interviewing people is difficult. We do it sometimes. Everybody has different journalists have all sorts of different um, uh, styles when it comes to it. Sometimes you want to just really go after the person and and you know, uh, you know, burn bridges and make it so that there's no way this person would ever consent to an interview with you again. Um, sometimes you hope that they'll come on again on your show. They'll talk to you again in the future. So you want to 
you know, balance it out in some way so that you can be in a position to interview that person again. And um, it, it's all about trade-offs, and it's, it is a difficult thing to navigate, and some journalists do it better than others. You know, we, we try our best. Um, I know when we had Fauci on, Bacha and I interviewed him a couple years ago. Um, a lot of people thought it was it was not harsh enough, given how how much we had con condemned him and criticized him. Um, but I wanted the opportunity to maybe interview him again. I, I think we actually asked him tougher questions than he almost ever got asked in any sort of mainstream or cable news, corporate news context. And I'm very proud that we did that, even if it wasn't, you know, he logged off in fury and anger, cut the interview short. That was, I decided, not going to be ultimately productive. Um, but people could disagree. Yeah. Well, let us know what you think and stick around, please, because we have more Rising for you coming up shortly. Alarming new video taken from a Biden press conference is highlighting voters' concerns about the president's age and mental capacity. Let's take a look. There is some movement, and I don't want to, I don't want to, well, maybe choose my words. There's some movement. There's been a response from the, uh, the, the, there's been a response from the opposition, but um, it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. Polling from NBC News finds three-quarters of voters, including half of Democrats, say they have concerns about Joe Biden's mental and physical health. Democrats, however, continue to blame the president's lukewarm standing with voters on messaging and communications issues. Now, after Biden won South Carolina's primary with an anemic 4 percent of voters coming out, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison blamed poor turnout on disinformation, telling outlet notice, quote, I think there's a lot of disinformation out there. There are a lot of folks who don't want this president for whatever reason, and I think some foreign and some domestic, they don't want the record to be straight in terms of what the president has done and accomplished. Russia, Russia, Russia. Meanwhile, Biden won Nevada's Democratic primary yesterday with 89 percent of the vote, though Biden's challengers, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson, did not actually make the ballot. In other positive news for the president, special counsel Robert Herr has completed his investigation into the classified documents found at a number of Biden-associated locations, including the garage at his Wilmington home. No charges expected there. Um, I don't think that's going to matter as much as these repeated video clips of Biden painfully struggling to answer basic questions, to recall anecdotes and say there was nothing substantive he had to say there. The negotiations with Hamas are ongoing and we're hopeful, but there's nothing concrete. That's all he had to say there. And oh, he struggled through it in a way that makes you uncomfortable, yeah. in a way that, again, I think I said this yesterday, calls to mind elderly relatives and friends and neighbors and, you know, not wanting them to have to exhaust themselves because it's embarrassing for them and it's uncomfortable. And he's the president of the United States. It, it, it's it's reminiscent of Dianne Feinstein and some of what Mitch McConnell is going through. And John Fetterman, right after his uh, really serious medical issues that he has, he has thankfully 
seemingly fully recovered yeah, from. Regrettably, you know, if this were a Fetterman situation, I think Democrats would be much better positioned because people recover from strokes, as they is do. evident by how uh, spirited John Fetterman is in climbing to the roof and draping himself with an Israeli flag. <laughs> I don't think we'll see Joe Biden climbing to any roofs waving any kind of flags uh, aggressively or with, with vigor anytime soon. That entire press conference, I mean, obviously, that's the clip that has gone viral. But his energy level and general tone throughout that entire press conference was very sluggish and, and difficult to watch. You, you heard him get an assist from the audience to come up with the name Hamas. And as we were talking about a little bit off camera, the idea of mixing up words or, you know, you know, saying France when you mean Germany or, you know, and then correcting right. yourself immediately, that's the kind of verbal slip up that we all engage in. But the slow down pace, the clear difficulty cognitively in remembering what you were talking about in the first instance, and the fact that it's now happening repeatedly, I think is a concern. We talked about another clip that went viral earlier this week, and I think it might be worth just playing it for the audience again so they can remember what we're talking about. People have pled guilty. You know, right, right, right after I was elected, I went to a, what they call a G7 meeting, all the NATO leaders. I was in, it was in the south of England. And I sat down and I said, America's back. And Mitterrand from Germany, I mean, from France, looked at me and said, uh, said, you know, what, why, how, how long are you back for? It just gets so uncomfortable to watch. Yeah, as you pointed out, the, the confusing Germany for France quickly and then correcting it, the, yeah, that's no big deal. We all do that. But he was, he was talking about someone, the wrong political figure, and then he didn't correct that. That went on and on. Someone who had been dead for years by the time the meeting he's referring to took place. Of course, Joe Biden has been uh, in in office, in Congress, so long, I'm thinking, well, maybe he, he did meet him back then, but he's referring to the G7. That's right. the leaders of the of the countries. That yeah. happened when he was president. There was no Mitterrand at the time. Right. So now some Democrats are going to say, well, Donald Trump has gaffes and slip-ups, but they're not covered in the same way. Most recently, there was the moment on the campaign trail where he attributed to Nikki Haley actions at the Capitol on January 6th that were attributable to Nancy Pelosi, which I would argue is a similar kind of substantive confusion, not just mixing up your words or having a verbal tick at that, in a way that's very excusable and common. And maybe there is something to be said about the fact that even though it does seem like Joe Biden is in worse decline as Donald Trump, it's not a good idea to have either of these, you know, almost octogenarians on the ballot. But for the Democrats, this has become a liability in a way that, for whatever yeah. reason, it just has not for, for Donald Trump. And the question is, when are people like DNC Chair Jamie Hairston going to wake up and stop saying that people's concern about Joe Biden's mental and physical health is because of Russian disinformation and take responsibility for the fact that the Democratic Party has thrown everything, including preserving democracy in their own words, behind someone who is now in such an obvious state of decline. Yeah, it is not surprising at all to see them turn to that well, the Russian disinformation well. Again, one of the most widely overhyped, exaggerated claims ever made uh, going back to 2016 for the extent of Russian influence, their ability to manipulate you, uh, to mani to manipulate you on social media has now been 
debunked over and over again. A small number of accounts, yes, directed by Russia, not correctly targeted at the right people, not making a splash compared with the amount of money the campaigns themselves spent on messaging on social media. It just became a cope for Hillary to say, I lost because Russia was out to get me. Uh, now they have turned to that well over and over and over again. And, and, and on this issue, th there's no confusion coming from Russia. And Russia's not making people think Biden is old. He is old. Right. He's the oldest person to be right. president, and he shows it. It looks that way. And absolutely fair to go after Trump for the same thing. Trump is also showing his age to some degree. He makes verbal slip-ups, too. Frankly, he's just kind of incoherent and ranty when he talks. He keeps his energy level up higher, which covers for a lot, right. and is, is fending off some of these same charges. And you say that's unfair, and he's old, too, and he's out of it. Frankly, there are a lot of people in America who don't think either are very appealing Absolutely. candidates and that's wish there were the other choices. So, uh, so that that's fine. But it is absolutely more of a liability for Biden, and that it, that's it's not partisan or ideological to observe that. Democrats are observing that, too. They are very nervous about this guy being the candidate. I would be nervous about him debating Trump, which he I, uh, eventually has to do, right? Right. I wouldn't want to debate Trump if I were him because— Again, and I'm not trying to say Trump is some rhetorical genius or master of the debate stage, but that kind of incoherence where Biden loses his train of thought and can't recover it, it, it I haven't seen that to the same degree from Donald Trump. And this seems to be getting worse by the day for Biden. The debates yeah. are still a couple months off. Now, to be clear, as you just alluded to, there was this back and forth where a couple of days ago, Trump said, I'd like to debate him now because we should debate. We should debate for the good of the country. And Biden responded. This was on Monday during a stop in Nevada. Immediately, well, if I were him, I'd want to debate me too. He's got nothing else to do. Um, so he seems to be accepting that challenge. But I remember back in 2020 when there was already discussion about his cognitive state uh, at the right in advance of that last debate between um, Bernie and Biden. And wondering if, the, you know, this was Bernie's last opportunity. Yep. Obviously, I was working for the campaign and was rooting for Bernie Sanders to pull one out and being, frankly, kind of surprised and disheartened by how competent, forceful, energetic and, you know, capable Biden was at that debate. I, I was remember like, well, he did a really good he job. He really came one. out of the, I don't know where yeah. all that energy came from. I haven't seen much of that since then. Yeah. And I do wonder, do they have tricks up their sleeves? Can he spend a week getting well-rested and doing whatever else it takes for him to put on a show when it matters? And then will that be enough? I don't know. I wouldn't count him out because, again, I had low expectations four years ago and he came through. But he's only gotten older in those intervening four years. And so I think we're all waited with bated breath to see what happens. If there's another one of these videos every couple days between now and the election day. I don't know, man. I don't know. But we'll see about that. More rising right after this. Hamas has proposed a three-stage ceasefire plan that would involve a 135-day truce and hostage deal. The proposal would see militants exchange remaining Israeli hostages they captured on October 7th for Palestinian prisoners, the reconstruction of Gaza, Israeli forces would withdraw completely, and bodies and remains would be exchanged per Reuters. Now, the proposal comes in response to a proposal sent last week by Qatari and Egyptian mediators and backed by the United States and Israel. According to a draft of the Hamas proposal seen by Reuters, the plan envisions three phases, each lasting 45 days. Here's President Joe Biden speaking on the Hamas response. There's been a response from the opposition, but um, 
it, it, yes, I'm sorry, from Hamas, but it seems to be uh, a little over the top. We're not sure where it is. There's a continuing negotiation right now. Israel has said they will never agree to Hamas's ceasefire proposal. A source connected to Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's office told NBC News today. The source said, quote, the fact that Hamas is asking for a ceasefire for Israelis to withdraw its forces, that's something that Israel will never agree to. Israel's chief military spokesperson said 31 of the remaining hostages being held in Gaza have died. According to Quds News, footage published by resistance groups in Gaza show Israeli captives reporting being rep repeatedly targeted by Israeli aircraft and forces. Uh, so that has raised some concerns about this so-called Hannibal Directive. I did a radar on it uh, a week or two ago. Uh, it was a policy that used to be openly adopted by Israel to eliminate any hostages, to preclude um, any negotiation and hostage exchanges for a ceasefire, exactly the scenario that's before them now. You feel less pressure, obviously, to have a ceasefire for a hostage exchange if there are no hostages remaining. Of course, we don't know if that is, in fact, the plan of Israel at this time. So— Yes. So the, the Hamas ceasefire plan is on the table. I believe we don't know—we haven't specifically seen the details of what uh, Israel, Israel proposed. has proposed right now. We do know the details of an earlier proposal, which involved—which uh, was similar in, in terms of, uh, of hostage and prisoner exchange, but also requires um, the senior leadership of Hamas to go into exile to leave the region. Um, which is something that they did not agree to do. So we'll see if they continue to be too far apart on this issue to conceivably compromise. I guess the Israeli position is that, right, we will continue until Hamas is defeated, either killed. A, a goal there far, far still from obtaining. There was an interview with uh, um, CENTCOM the other day. I can't recall if we discussed it. I think we did, where um, the official was pointing out that, yeah, they have not they haven't killed enough uh, Hamas senior leaderships—members uh, of senior leadership yet. So on the Israeli side, it will continue for quite some time, I think, unless an agreement is made. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, Netanyahu and his government is getting a lot of flack internally because the, the, the priority of many Israelis is quite obviously getting the return of hostages. Hostage families have been livid over the idea that they don't feel like that's being prioritized right now. Obviously, there was a stunning images of the um, kind of stripped-down Israeli hostages holding their hands up, having a white flag, who were shot by the IDF as they tried to, you know, return to their own side. Um, there's this reporting that hostages keep getting killed, hostages saying that they're being targeted by Israeli strikes. Um, and as a, and when you see deals like this on the table, where there would be a hostage exchange, that all, where all the hostages could be returned, and Israel is saying, no, we'll never do that until we achieve these goals that all these military experts are saying are unachievable, i.e., completely getting rid of Hamas, um, it does start to look increasingly like, well, yes, the priority isn't, in fact, getting hostages back. Remember that when there was that one-week pause in November, there was a successful hostage exchange. About 100 hostages were freed in a swap with about 240 Palestinian hostages. And according to this uh, stated plan by Hamas, in phase one, a 45-day pause 
would be accompanied by an exchange of all Israeli female hostages and males under 19. The elderly and the sick would be exchanged for Palestinian women and children held in Israeli jails. Israeli forces would withdraw from populated areas of Gaza and the reconstruction of hospitals and refugee camps would begin. In phase two, the remaining male Israeli hostages would be exchanged for Palestinian prisoners and Israeli forces would leave Gaza completely. And in phase three, both sides would exchange remains and bodies. And you're hearing Netanyahu, as we just read, say, that's completely unacceptable. I will never agree to anything other than a complete, um, uh, I don't want to mischaracterize those words, but completely taking um, Gaza. And that does seem well, defeat to be— of Hamas, complete to, defeat of Hamas. Uh, uh, there was— yeah, we'll, we'll go with that for now. I'm going to go back and read the actual um, quote, because it did align with what we were hearing out of that settlers' conference last weekend, or the weekend before last, where there were, what, 14 members of the Israeli cabinet there, and they weren't just talking about defeating Hamas. They were very specifically talking about a new settler plan for Gaza, to, re to resettle Gaza mm -hmm. the way it had once been resettled and to turn it into something akin to what's going on uh, in the West Bank. And if you keep, if you, if you believe that that is the kind of the stated goal of at least the far-right Israeli government that's in charge right now, you can see with, you, you, you can see that right. it's sort of in line with the massive destruction of buildings, 70 percent of all residential centers destroyed, every university in Gaza but, destroyed, the desecration of 16 cemeteries and the like. But, it, it, but if you think that is the goal, that should, that should create more of an incentive for um, Hamas to surrender and go into exile so that you can have the ceasefire and the peace before more of Gaza is destroyed and then they're able to just take it and settle it because there's, like, no one left alive. You said earlier that, you know, military experts saying the goal of defeating Hamas is unachievable. I think the, the real question is, can it be achieved realistically with still with U.S. support? Because at, I, I would think at some point, it hasn't happened yet, um, we would—the U.S. would withdraw total support for what they're doing. Maybe that will never happen. Or, or the public— will to, to do this, or the international pressure, you know, if they were literally going to kill every single person in the area, there would be tremendous pressure to stop that. They could—they, like, they could do that. They, they could resort to, you know, I don't want to propose more desperate solutions for totally decapitating Hamas's leadership. The question is, can they do that while still maintaining any sort of support or facing other consequences? And that's what they have to consider as they decide, you know, whether to accept a proposal like this. Again, I hope—I I would wish for both sides to come to the table, agree to exchange hostages and prisoners, um, Hamas surrender and exit, and you have more thoughtful, responsible leadership of the Strip for their own benefit. But, of course, there's tremendous um, resistance to that on the Israeli well, side as well. Yeah, the problem is, it's not just tremendous resistance to that on the Israeli side, it's that Israel Benjamin Netanyahu has worked to Pied Piper Hamas into existence, so he never has to be in the position to negotiate with a more palatable peer for uh, Palestinian statehood. He has said repeatedly and unequivocally that under his watch there will never be a Palestinian state, which is obviously in conflict with Americans' own status priorities and Joe Biden's stated priorities to have a two-state solution. Um, and Biden also had wanted to try to bring in the PLO as a more reasonable right. re leadership after this conflict is over to replace Hamas, and Benjamin Netanyahu has also been opposed to that. So the, the language that I was looking for before from Netanyahu that we read earlier was, the fact that Hamas is asking for a ceasefire for Israelis to withdraw 
withdraw its forces, that's something that Israel will never agree to do. It will never agree to withdraw its forces, which does sound a lot like you're saying, I'm going to permanently settle. I, I think it means not withdraw our forces as long as Hamas remains in control of Gaza. If I mean, Netanyahu is going to get his way as long as the terrorist organization remains the de facto government of the Strip, because he's going to continue this effort, and he's going to continue bombing, and he's going to continue having troops in. And the only way that's not going to be—and by default, eventually, being able to engage in everything you're concerned about, the settling of the Strip, um, unless Hamas is defeated or surrenders prior to that. Well, Netanyahu is only going to get his way with the support of the American government. He could not be enacting this war, arguably a genocide, against Gaza without U.S. weaponry and U.S. funding and diplomatic cover. As Jeffrey Sachs explained on the show yesterday in an interview, as I highly recommend everybody go and watch, it, uh, all but four countries voted for Palestinian statehood, the United States, Israel, and two, like uh, Micronesia and another small island nation that apparently is like bound to vote along with the United States and whatever it does. The global community is not confused about what justice looks like in the region, in the human rights that Palestinians have to have a state, to have the right to self-defense, to have autonomy, the ability to have an airport, ability to have an army, army ability to use its own resources, fish in its own waters, etc. The barrier to that long-lasting peace and equality being achieved is truly Israel and its backing by the United States of America. So I think the pressure is, the reason that people are talking about this is, can there be internal pressure with the United States of America, because it's an election year, because Joe Biden ostensibly, I guess, wants to win, to finally get him to withdraw the diplomatic and financial cover that is enabling um, Israel to act against what the entire global community would like it to I be mean, doing in this moment and for the last um, uh, almost 20 years of occupation? Sure. I mean, those Israel say, will say the problem is Hamas, which which, which we know. continues existence, <laughs> we know what they, to we do know this, what they and say. it will continue until they are defeated. Yeah, we know. And they've been beating that drum. And as you see in all the polls and all the public backlash, it's just not persuasive anymore. People don't see 27 folks killed. They don't see 70 percent of those killed women and children. They don't see story after story of Israelis just digging up graves for no reason. This is a mainstream CNN reporting where CNN says there's no reason for this. The tunnel that you're pointing to isn't even on the gravesite. You don't see Israel blowing up, planting bombs, like demolishing, not in a I'm fighting, doing a firefight out with Hamas sort of way, but setting bombs. Obviously, it's safe enough to set bombs and doing planned demolitions of entire residential blocks of every university in Gaza. Gaza has one of the most educated, highest literacy rates, most educated populations in the world because of how deeply they value education there. There's very little else for people to do. It's 50 percent unemployment rate. But this is a very proud education-based society that it does seem like there's an intentional effort to undermine that, to make sure students don't feel like they can come home and finish their degrees, to not have any record of all of those accomplishments, to not to bomb all of these um, uh, civic centers that have all the records of families and their land and what their uh, property is, um, the looting of personal safes and jewelries from these houses that um, IDF soldiers have been proudly posting on their social media, the kinds of images that we see in these in this uh, Telegram channel that I covered on my radar yesterday, which the IDF has now admitted is not only real, but that is actually a part of their own kind of media influence department. They're telegraphing a, a kind of crime, kinds of crimes, that are not only 
in violation of international law and humanitarian principles, but are shocking to the conscience of the world as they watch this. So it does feel like there's only a matter of time before Israel is forced to stop largely because it cannot handle um, the blowback and America cannot handle the blowback. I but really I do agree that. that it's a, they can get a lot of, away with a lot as evidenced by the fact that 27,000 people and over 10,000 children who were alive three months ago are not alive today. Yeah. More rising right after this. President Donald Trump has issued a new statement on Bud Light as we approach one year since the company found itself in the midst of controversy over a March Madness partnership that they produced with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney. Now, Trump wrote on Truth Social, the Bud Light ad was a mistake of epic proportions, but Anheuser-Busch is not a woke company. Anheuser-Busch spends $700 million a year with our great farmers, employ 65,000 Americans, of which 1,500 are veterans. Anheuser-Busch is a great American brand that perhaps deserves a second chance. In response to Trump's remarks, commentator Matt Walsh wrote on X, Anheuser-Busch has not issued an apology backing off of the most effective conservative boycott in history without even an apology would turn out to be would turn one of our biggest recent victories into one of our dumbest self-owns. Mm. Bud Light might have a new spokesman. The company is partnering with comedian Shane Gillis. Gillis has been tapped to host Saturday Night Live in a few weeks, five years after he was hired and fired from the comedy show after clips of him using homophobic language and making an Asian slur surfaced, according to the New York Post. So, uh, interesting to see Trump uh, wade in here. And actually, I want to remind everyone, Trump Jr. said something very similar in the midst of the boycott, going, okay, have we punished them enough? Because Anheuser-Busch has given mm -hmm. money to Republicans in the past. Matt Walsh was having none of it when Don Jr. did it. He's having none of it now. Like, no, not until there's an actual apology, and then still maybe not then. But it interesting to see... Uh, um, the Trump family th are the ones who kind of are urging to ease up on the uh, the, the boycotting of, uh, of our precious companies. I said it before. I'll say it again. Money talks. These are all just business people making business decisions. But, but uh, Anheuser-Busch is not a woke company. It's not a conservative company. It's a company that wants to make money. And if it thinks it can make money by hiring Dylan Mulvaney to do a TikTok, right. it will do that. But it ended up it being wrong about it that. It can be make money by hiring Shane Gillis. It will do that. So Shane Gillis, I did, I remembered uh, writing an article about this for reason. Um, I thought his firing was a, a pretty down-the-line cancel culture kind of thing. Yes, he'd said some offensive things. He'd said them, in again, on a comedy podcast where I think the bar for, like, offensiveness should be somewhat higher. Well, let's just that talk was... about what he said, just so people can judge for themselves. He was joking about why he dislikes uh, Chinese and Asian people, Chinese, China, uh, Chinese food in Chinatown. He said, quote, why do the effing C-H-I-N-Ks live there? Um, get those ducks out of the window uh, in an Asian accent. Um, and then said that's more annoying than any other minority playing music on their loud phone. He went on to describe Judd Apatow and um, another comedian as white um, F-A-G-G-O-T comics. Yeah. Um, 
as Andrew Yang said at the time, I believe our, in response to this exactly, I believe our country has become excessively punitive and vindictive about remarks that people find offensive, and we need to try to move beyond that if we can, particularly in a case where the person is, in this case, a comedian whose words should be taken in a slightly different Look, light. Look, I like Shane Gillis. I enjoy his stand-up. I, I think he's really funny. I also think that this feels more like an HR workplace issue. Are you going to hire someone to come and work at SNL who, in very recent history, had been using pejorative racial slurs in the workplace? No. I don't know. Uh, I mean, on a, again, on a comedy podcast, I think that's a little different than, you know, going up to someone who is Asian or gay and yelling a slur at them. Is this is more I, like? I, I don't know. The, uh, I don't. I, I, I can't I don't even remember the last think. time I even heard people use that c word. It's just, it's really reaching way out of the way to go dig up a slur from yesterday in that context. But he wasn't, he wasn't context. using it as a, he wasn't deploying it as a slur. There's a lot of things that I think are wiggle roomy. This one, it's kind of really? like a cell phone. Yeah, look, it's fine. He's got a great career. He didn't need SNL, and now SNL is inviting him to come back on. But that really does feel like, hmm. it, 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 it clearly crosses a kind of line. I think he could have gotten away with the, even the Judd Apatow, like, F-word usage stuff, but who right, Judd, says right, that? Judd Apatow isn't, isn't gay, so it's not... No, right, I'm it's, not saying about not a, Judd Apatow, but just generally using the F-word, I think he could have gotten away with. I, I, I don't know. Like, I, would, would a workplace, would, would any office environment where people have to be collaborative and there are people of the demographic group in that office that is being a targeted by that slur, hire someone who on social media or wherever had been openly using a pejorative against that group. Is, is, I mean, is the Star person's a comedian. Is Starbucks going to... I mean, it, it, again, it, 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 I think... <laughs> if you, I mean, if that's, if that's how you feel... I think there's a difference between saying that word while you're telling maybe it was a bad or unfunny He's joke. He's talking about why he doesn't like Asian people. The joke is, this is why I don't well, like Asian stand, people. It's a routine. Okay. Yeah, I think that's different than going up to someone and saying it, and that there should be a higher bar for people engaged in expressive work. Just like, you know, you you wouldn't you wouldn't just like, you know, have pornography open or something on your laptop at work. But if you worked in a for like an art studio and there was a nude something, that would be different, right? It's like contextually dependent. I don't know. I guess we disagree. We yeah, will, we will move on. So, in other, uh, does do boycotts work? Sort of news here. McDonald's announced its first sales missed in nearly four years amid boycotts related to the ongoing siege of Gaza. As the Hill reported earlier this week, the burger giant says the low number is a reflection of the impact of the war in Gaza. During a Monday earnings call, McDonald's CEO Greg Kaczynski said the quote most. The, the mo quote, most pronounced impact here is in the Middle East and with other Muslim countries, including Malaysia and Indonesia. The Boycott, Sanction and Divestment Movement, or BDS, added McDonald's to the boycott list after McDonald's Israel gave away thousands of free meals to Israeli forces and citizens after the October 7th attack. Several franchise owners in the Middle East and Asia opposed that move. Starbucks, also a target of the BDS campaign, also lowered its sales forecast last week. So this is an interesting uh, parallel to what happened with the Bud Light situation. It is, it is 
you know, this is like an, even, an equal playing field. Uh, the BDS movement has been reviled in the United States of America and criminalized in some instances. I've talked often about how Abby Martin um, fought and won a legal case uh, when she was precluded from giving a speech at a university because of a rule that said that she could not be uh, there's uh, have a contractual relationship with a I think a government institution a state institution if you supported the BDS movement and yet it seems to be growing steam and having more success in light I think of the images that are coming out of Gaza right now hmm. Yeah, I mean, part of the, I think, inspiration for the uh, boycott of Bud Light by conservatives is some of these, uh, perception at least, or maybe successful in some cases, uh, idea that um, left-wing and progressive people engage in boycotts and, and can influence policy in that way. We've, they've, I think they're learning from, from BDS. Yeah, I think the difference is, I don't think you're going to get but... Rashida Tlaib saying, uh, because McDonald's donated to my campaign, I'm going to flip ideologically and decide to support this thing. Uh, but if that's what Donald Trump is going to do, it'll be interesting to see if that actually <laughs> divides the base in any meaningful way or, like in most things, the base just follows him and whatever mm. his whims are. Well, I would still drink beer and eat McDonald's despite activists on all sides having conflicts with them, but I actually am not a big fan of beer or McDonald's, so I'm tacitly supporting endorsing <laughs> these boycotts um, without, uh, without changing my habits very much. We will be back with more Rising right after this. Please stay with us. Might Cara Dune get her revenge against the Empire, also known as the House of Mouse? For those non-nerds in the audience, actress Gina Carano is suing Disney for wrongful termination with the help of Elon Musk. In a post made on X, Carano wrote, Today is an important day for me. I am filing a lawsuit against Lucasfilm and Disney after my 20 years of building a career from scratch and during the regime of former Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Lucasfilm made this statement on Twitter, terminating me from The Mandalorian. Hollywood says they support female representation and equal rights. Why then were my male co-stars permitted to speak without harassment and re-education courses or termination? But I was not afforded the same right to exercise my freedom of speech. Crana was fired from her role as Cara Dune on The Mandalorian back in 2021, following comments she made on social media that some construed as minimizing the Holocaust after she compared pl the political vitriol faced by conservatives to those faced by Jews in Germany. Crana also posted comments that were critical of COVID-19 mandates. Now, some fans at the time were skeptical of Disney's rationale, as Mandalorian star Pedro Pascal had also posted on social media comparing the treatment of Jews to those in of children in migrant detention facilities. Mm. Carano took advantage of an offer by Musk made in 2023 to pay the legal fees for people who had been discriminated against or fired by their employer for things posted on the platform. Musk has been hitting Disney particularly hard this week. Musk posted an image of a leaked inclusion standard from Disney that seemingly requires large swaths of both characters in Disney products and leadership positions to be from, quote, underrepresented groups, large swaths of representative amounts. Uh, according to the population. Though humorously, the bottom of the document says it's illegal to ask candidates about certain attributes, uh, such as sexual orientation or disability status. Mm. So I remember the Gina Carano thing happening. Uh, I was a, I'm a Star Wars fan, a fan of The Mandalorian. She appeared in the first two seasons and then was fired and did not appear in the third season um, after she made some political posts on social media on X. Um, as we described, I also remember she posted that um, it's, it's kind of an anti, uh, I would say anti, like, 
globalist conspiracy type thing with, with like um, like Ooh, they're controlling you. globalist and doing puppet fingers isn't helping your case, Robbie. Well, well, I'm, de I'm describing the image. That it was oh, one of those. Okay. No, it was one of those images where uh, we're being puppet mastered. Yeah. That is that image is considered correctly considered anti-Semitic. But my point was, I don't think she probably understood the anti-Semitic connections behind it. Frankly, I think 98% of people who saw this image would not have identified it necessarily as anti-Semitic. It, it's an, one of those, like, if you really know what the symbols associated with anti-Semitism are, you would probably think this was anti-Semitic. But, um, I, I, so I thought I wouldn't have fired her over this. It was slightly politically provocative stuff. Now, obviously, she doesn't have free speech rights or First Amendment rights with respect to her employer. Your employer can fire you for whatever reason they want. They want to fire her. That's fine. So I don't make a lot of—I don't put a lot of faith in this lawsuit, nor do I necessarily think, like, suing, like, more lawsuits. I'm not a litigious person. I don't, I don't think suing every time you think you've been wrong is necessarily a good idea. So while I am— sympathetic to her and supportive of the idea that they probably shouldn't have fired her for this mm -hmm. and that it's a little unfair given that, in fact, her co-star had also made similar... And if, if the problem is anal analogizing anything to the Holocaust, he did that as well. It was just done in a more, you know, politically acceptable way to right. the so liberal establishment. It's so it's an ideological attack, you're saying, right. because it's okay to say that uh, kids in cages it's are like akin the to the Holocaust, but not, but not COVID mandates or whatever. Or it wasn't just Republicans broadly that she said Republicans are being treated like. I think in response to crackdown on COVID stuff. Anyway, so I, I'm sympathetic to her. I don't think they should have fired her. I don't really think she should. I mean, she can, but I, I don't think suing to get what to get back into the to back into the Mandalorian universe. And I, I liked her character very much. I, I thought she's a great actress. Um, I I missed her presence on the show. I think the show was better with her. So to, I'm on her side for all that, but. Um, you know, it seems like a little frivolous to me, the lawsuit. Uh, sure. I mean, look, that's a big role to lose. And if yeah. she does feel like she was fired for ideological reasons, I mean, this isn't a university campus. This isn't a, a scenario where employers can't kind of make those kind of ideological decisions if they want. But it is concerning. There's been a whole... Um, a uh, fleet of these things that have happened in the wake of October 7th. I think it was Susan Sarandon who lost her representation over uh, comments in support of Palestine. This really does seem to be a third rail of sorts. And it's very interesting that apparently the image that she was criticized for was one of these kind of um, anti-Semitic puppeteering images because The Guardian is in heat right now for doing that exact same kind of imagery with uh, pu puppeteering, but they did a... Palestinian, ostensibly man. He's got a, a red, white, and green. I'm not actually sure what that. Maybe it's Iranian flag on his wrist and a turban on, and he's puppeteering the Houthis and all these other groups in the region. And there's questions being raised about why is this kind of an image okay hmm. if it's uh, a Muslim man in that position versus a Jewish man in that position. And it does seem to be that these double standards are emerging all over the place and figuring out what exactly that third rail is and what that red line is, I think is an important question to ask um, for folks like her who yeah. are going to find themselves on the wrong side of it. What the standards should be in these kinds of instances is really kind of up in the air. Because like I said, ideologically, right. you know, she's not fired because of who she is, protected yeah. class. I mean, I should say, I don't know the terms of her contract, right? Yeah. If they fired her, if fired her despite their contract saying, you may post on social media and we will not 
you know, do anything about it, or if that was stated in the contract, she has every right to—I'm not, like, saying she shouldn't be allowed to sue them. Yeah. I'm just the—in general, the way employers structure these things is that they can fire you, you know, for for many reasons. I mean, unfortunately— If you bring them embarrassment. Yeah, exactly. And, there are those kinds yeah. of clauses, like good behavior yeah. clauses. What constitutes good behavior is very interesting. Yeah. Apparently, saying something sympathetic in favor of um, kids in cages at the border yeah. does not— look bad for the company, saying something yeah. that is uh, adopting an anti-Semitic meme, knowingly or not, does reflect badly yeah. on the company. These are all subjective judgments, obviously, and the chips are going to fall in all kinds of places. Yeah, hard to know. But uh, I did miss her presence on the show. You're not a, you're not a Star Wars—you're a Star Trek person, so you haven't watched any of these, I don't uh, think. I did not—I don't have Disney, right. so I did not watch The Mandalorian. I did binge-watch— the other one with Ander? that cute little biscuit. Yeah. Uh, I watched that one when I was Is the cute, home the cute little biscuit is Diego Luna? Yeah. I, I think it's adorable. <laughs> I really enjoyed that one. I watched that over That one, holidays. I can see how that one would be up your alley. That was definitely the best made of all of them. Very compelling. It was very good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We will continue to bring you more Star Wars news, I hope. By the way, I think Elon Musk should actually just mount a lawsuit on my behalf so that I can take creative control of the Star Wars universe. <laughs> okay. I have better ideas than what <laughs> Kathleen Kennedy is up to right now. I'm just saying it. More rising right after this. A jury has found Jennifer Crumbly, mother of Michigan school shooter Ethan Crumbly, guilty of involuntary manslaughter for her willful neglect of her son. Ethan Crumbly was found guilty in connection with the shooting deaths of four students at Oxford High School in November 2021, namely Madison Baldwin, 17, Tate Meyer, 16, Justin Schilling, 17, and Hannah San Juliana, 14. Awful. Here's footage of Jennifer Crumbly receiving her guilty verdict. Count one of involuntary manslaughter as to Madison Baldwin, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah, Hannah St. Juliana, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, we find the defendant guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Thank you for Jennifer and James Crumley are a rare case of parents being charged in connection with a shooting carried out by their son in a day-long trial. Prosecutors presented who bought their son the gun and to, that was used in the shooting. It was, in fact, the parents. Prosecutors said Jennifer was a negligent mother and uh, revealed how she was having an affair with a fire captain. Crumley ignored her son who had clear mental health problems and who had been reaching out for help. A journal entry from Ethan read, quote, my parents won't listen to me about help or a therapist. I have zero help from my mental health problems and it's causing me to shoot up the school. Ethan Crumley is serving a life prison sentence without the possibility of parole. So this is a, a obviously horrible thing that occurred. Um, and the actions of the parents seem totally reprehensible from a moral point of view, from a—they from, seem like really awful parents. They 
Um, now, they say they didn't read his journal entry, they didn't, that he'd never expressed a desire to receive mental health counseling, that they had no idea he'd expressed a desire to shoot up a school. They did buy him a gun as a Christmas present. The next week, he went to school. Um, this, uh, he made some notes about doing a mass shooting, blood everywhere. Those were seen. He was taken to a counselor's office. The parents were called in, and he had already had the gun at the school. He'd planted it in mm -hmm. the school somewhere. And, um, they said uh, that— It was in his backpack. Yeah. The, which they did not search after discovering these images yeah. that were so alarming that it, they called right. his parents which, which raised, Which is, frankly, wrongdoing on the school's part as well, one might expect. So then he was allowed to return to class after he said, no, I'm not going to do a mass shooting. it is the school's fault, but the parents know something that the school doesn't yes, know, which they is did that they not just tell him purchased, they had purchased him a, him a gun. Yes. Yeah. So, and then he perpetrates this mass shooting, and he is uh, in prison for life. So they have ch they charged and convicted the mother. They've also charged the father. So I, I certainly understand why they would do that. But there is a—I uh, was reading an article written at Reason Magazine about the case where I also write— um, taking issue with the charges and saying there really isn't a law in Michigan that correctly criminalizes what she's alleged to have done. Some states have a law that criminalizes giving a minor a gun in some reckless way. Michigan does, specifically does not have that law. Mm -hmm. um, another aspect of it is that, you know, so they charged him as an adult, the, the kid, as an adult. So it's a little weird to say, well, he's an adult and getting the punishment of an adult because he is responsible. He's an adult, so he's responsible for his actions. But then to, for, for, from the standpoint of charging his parents, he's this underage child whom they are ultimately responsible for. And I think you can't really have it. I you agree. shouldn't have it both and ways. And it, it, it frustrates me greatly that the idea of being a minor versus an adult is a formality in so many cases because so many minors are Absolutely. in fact charged in that way. So I, I agree with you there. And I think there, I'm not as familiar with the laws involved in this case. It seems from this Reason Magazine write-up that there isn't anything that really would go to this. And so they kind of made it, making it up out of whole cloth. That being said, a case like this does seem to be a really good argument for passing that kind sure. of legislation. Um, the levels of negligence here seem to be multifold. Um, yes. The mother says in her testimony that she was not aware of these mental health issues. It seems, frankly, unlikely. She characterized repeated statements from her son that the house was haunted as him joking. Um, he obviously says in his journal entry that he had told his parents that he had mental health issues and wanted a therapist. So it's a he said, she said, but it. I mean, it does strike me as curious that a child would write, I've asked my parents for help and they won't get it to me, for an audience of who mm -hmm. exactly, if it weren't true. Uh, it's a private uh, journal. The in incredible negligence of purchasing your son a pistol, from my perspective in the first instance, you can make some kind of a case about a hunting rifle and it being a cultural pastime. You can even make some argument about yes, pistols they did being self-defense. They did go shooting as an activity, as a family activity. Um, but to purchase a minor a pistol, yeah. to then be called into school because your son has drawn a gun with images about, uh, sorry, with words about um, uh, bloodshed and not being able to get it out of your brain on the gun, and to not tell the school that he has a pistol exactly like the one that's been drawn, similar enough to the one that's been drawn, that you should maybe consider checking his backpack, checking his locker. 
the fact that the family didn't have some rules, a lockbox, something to monitor mm -hmm. the son's behavior with so the deadly So Michigan weapon. did subsequently pass a law uh, uh, with respect to how you have to store guns properly, um, but that law also was not on the books at the time. So yeah. they can't charge them with that either. This, I mean, this is a tragic sure. case. Um, and I can appreciate why morally there is this effort to, you know, construe sure. the law in a way that holds these parents accountable, because it does seem like they are accountable. It seems accountable. like an unusual level of direct... Um, now, often in a lot of other you know, mass shooting cases that we've covered, there is a lot of indications that something is wrong. And sometimes, in fact, parents and family members do speak up. That was the case of the Parkland shooter in Florida, where... Mm -hmm. where People, people saw something and said something. Family and friends complained to, to repeated authorities, to the school authorities, to the local police, to the FBI, and nothing was done. Yeah. But this was a case where there, was a, there seems to have been a lot of knowledge of something being wrong, including and that he had a gun, and he, just, he had drawn these photos. That day, he was already planning to do it. Um, there, was a, there was actually a rumor at the school that there was about to be a mass shooting. Like, really? I think the day before. And the school, like, debunked that and said, everything's fine. Everybody come to school. So there might be some, frankly, wrongdoing on the school's part that, as well. That um, definitely seems right. I don't know if you're going to get it in a place where it's... Um, criminally chargeable. Manslaughter, but. exactly. Uh, but holy smokes, what a tragic situation. And it, it is nice to hear that there was some legal response, legislative response yeah. to trying to close these kind of loopholes. I would also be curious to know what the rules are with respect to gifting guns and how that yeah. bumps up against any kind of red flag law or mental health checks that would be required by someone who's buying a gun for right. themselves. Right. I do, you know, I, I do think a person who misuses a gun, uses a gun to kill people, that person is the person responsible for what happens by and large, but this person was technically a minor and there seems to be a lot of, okay, and, and they were convicted, but so, so clearly a jury thought there was enough based on the law to convict these people of, or to convict the mother at least of negligence. Yeah. This, this seems, yeah, pretty, uh, pretty exceptional case of potentially actual negligence. Yeah. But there you have it. Tomorrow on Rising, we will be back for our Thursday edition of our show. Me and Brianna, we will see you there. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while you're on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Goodbye. <laughs>